This morning, we're going to continue this mini-series here, the stories behind the Psalms, talking about the Song of the Savior. When French Impressionist painter, uh, if I can say his name right, uh, uh, Auguste Renoir was confined to his home during the last decade of his life, Henry Matisse was nearly 28 years younger than him. The two great artists were dear friends and frequent companions. Matisse visited him daily. Renoir, almost paralyzed by arthritis, continued to paint in spite of his infirmities. He had to hold his brush between his thumb and index finger. As he painted, students often heard him crying out in pain. One day, as Matisse watched the elder painter work in his studio, fighting torturous pain with each brushstroke, he blurted out, Auguste, why do you continue to paint when you are in such agony? Renoir said, the pain passes, but the beauty remains. The pain passes, but the beauty remains. We're going to be, as I said, focusing today on communion. And I thought as an opening question, just to get your minds thinking, when you think of communion, when you think of the communion table, and I wonder, what does that mean to you? What, what, what thoughts come to your mind as far as its significance in your life. Here are actually the words that shape the communion service. For I received from the Lord, writes Paul, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And these are the words that were passed on down from Jesus to Paul to you and me today when we take communion. This is what we kind of go through. And I wonder again, what is communion? Is it just a service? Is it a mere tradition? Is it a religious expression? What exactly is communion to you? And I thought about what communion is and isn't just up front here this morning. Like communion is about remembering Christ, his cross and its personal impact on our lives personally. It's it's, it's the impact on my life and your life personally. This is my body, which is for you. That's the personal impact. Do this in remembrance of me. That's the remembrance of Christ. And so this is what communion is, and we need to understand it in this way, and we continually proclaim it, he says, until the Lord comes back. Here's what communion isn't. Communion is not about seeing if I am worthy. Communion is about knowing that I am worthy. And so there's this element, sometimes we bring in this idea that communion, you need to give yourself a self-examination. Am I worthy to take communion today? And that defeats the purpose of communion because communion is all about the fact that Christ has made you worthy, even though you aren't. And I often think about that reality. I think the truth is if I focus on Christ and I focus on his death and his crucifixion, you know, the sin in my life is just going to naturally rise to the surface and I'm going to become aware of it. I don't need to sit there and give myself an examination, but the Holy Spirit's going to let me know those things, that I am so grateful. And what that does is that cause me, causes me to drink from the cup more deeply and to feast on the bread of life more vigorously. It makes me more grateful when I am aware of my sin as I take communion to know that Christ has paid the price for my sin. So today, we're going to walk to the communion table by walking through a very interesting psalm, Psalm 22. I don't think I have ever done a communion service in what now, almost 25 years of ministry, on the psalms. I don't think I've done a, a communion sermon on the psalms. We're going to do that today in a very powerful way. And uh, as I said, next Sunday, we're starting something new. But today, just a couple of messages here in the psalms the last two Sundays. And here is our big idea today. It's, it's what we learned from that Renoir the pain passes, but the beauty remains. The pain passes, but the beauty remains. And those would be Jesus' words, certainly, as he looks at his own suffering on the cross. Now, Psalm 22 is commonly known as a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that points us to the Messiah, Jesus himself. But it has this most amazing contrast. And as I looked into this psalm this week, there's just so many things I discovered that I was never really aware of in this psalm. And there's this, just this amazing contrast, right? 
Psalms 23 has an amazing contrast. It is the psalm of lament with the most intense suffering of all the psalms. Probably you won't find a psalm with greater suffering in it, yet it ends with 11, or really I should say 10 verses of victory and hope. Like the final 10 verses, 22 through 31, are are verses of, of great victory and hope. It's a psalm that begins with the lowest of lows and ends with the highest of highs. And I think that is so incredibly amazing. One other thing as we get into the psalm here again, and into these psalms, I was really struck by something I heard this week. You know what makes the psalms so powerful? I'm going to give you a quote, and this isn't mine. I can't think of who said this. Um, but, but somebody said this, and I thought, wow, this is really a fascinating quote. Here's why the psalms are so powerful. It's a reality check. The psalms are our words to God, aren't they, right? And still, God's word to us. Like, just rattle that around in your brain, right? The Psalms are our words, like David here in Psalm 22 is crying out to God, and these are his words, and this is his story, and it's our story, and yet it's God's word to us. Like, wow. Like, just kind of wrap your head around that. Let that soak in today. That, that there is really, to me, really profound. And so again, the pain passes, but the beauty remains, and we'll see that as we walk through Psalm 22, and we're going to look for four powerful truths here to remember at the communion table this morning and how the death of one leads to the praise of many. That's, the, that's Psalm 22 in a nutshell. It's really, really amazing. Four truths. Here's the first truth this morning. It's in the first two verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not, not answer. And by night, I find no rest and here's our first lesson remember that our story became his story remember that our story became his story as we see jesus going to and hanging on the cross as as we hear his anguish and pain as we watch him mocked and shamed by the people that's our story he's hanging on what should have been our cross we're the ones mired in sin and shame. We're the ones broken and hurting. We're the ones guilty of the cross. Jesus has simply taken our place. I often say here the Bible is a portrait of Christ. It is all about Jesus. It's his story, right? But, but go back to Genesis chapter three. Like just, just get past the creation and, and what do we find? Adam and Eve. Like in the beginning, this was our story. This was Adam and Eve and they were placed in the garden and given dominion over the, all, the, all the earth and, and this is supposed to be our story. And then we, of course, we blew it. Then comes the fall. And then comes the destruction of sin. It's, it's such a sad, sad, sad reality. And so what happens? How, how, what does God do about this sad thing? Real simple. Jesus has written himself into our story. It started out as our story. We blew it. Jesus came down and wrote himself into our story. He came down to right our wrongs and redeem a fallen people and heal a cursed world. He wrote himself into our story. That means that our pain became his, our brokenness became his, our sin became his, our death became his. Go back to that opening line again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Understand, those are David's words, really. David went through something and he feels abandoned by God. Now, as we'll see today, he wasn't abandoned by God, but he felt abandoned by God. He felt that way. So this is David's personal psalm, yet it is also considered, as we said, a messianic psalm. It is a poetic psalm, but a prophetic psalm in a sense too. It has a double meaning and a prophetic undertone. And we'll see that so clearly as we go through it. After the fact, it is hard not to read Psalm 22 and say, that is about Jesus. That's about the Christ. And again, why are the Psalms so beloved? Because they are our story. Because we relate to them. Because they express our emotions and reveal our thoughts and ask our questions. So the Psalm that is David's Psalm and the Psalm that is our Psalm became Jesus' Psalm because he wrote himself into our story. Look at verses three through five though a minute here. Oh, Psalm 22, it's a, it's a millennial psalm. And just note, this was written 1,000 years before Jesus. 1,000 years before Jesus comes. And this is one of the reasons why we just believe the Bible is the word of God because all these prophecies written thousands of years ago came true 1,000 years later. Psalm 22, look at verses 3 and uh, 4 and 5. You are holy and thrown down the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. 
And I find an interesting juxtaposition here when you look at these three verses. This fascinating juxtaposition arises. Yet you are holy. Like David feels abandoned by God, but he makes this declaration of faith that God is holy. Like I say, our faith is not based on our feelings. It's based on God's faithfulness. And we see that in the text. This again goes back to one of the most common questions people raise about the authenticity and trustworthiness of the Bible. People always question God because they're like, if God is real and if God is personal and if, if God is loving and caring, why does he not care about evil on the earth? Why does he not care about, care about the sin and destruction and all the troubles and trials that we go through? People ask that. They question God and his goodness because of this sense. And the best way to answer that question, to handle that question, I'll give you just a bit of advice today, is transfer that question over to Jesus. Because here's the point. When, when David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is also saying, because he wrote, us in, wrote himself into our story, he's also saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus immediately follows that up with, you are holy, yet you are trustworthy. Kind of paraphrase there. My God, my God, why did you forsaken me? And then it's juxtaposed with, yet you are holy, yet you are trustworthy. And so here's this, this interesting juxtaposition that goes on, right? Despite how Jesus feels, he feels abandoned. He knows that God is holy. Like God is holy despite how I feel. And despite how Jesus feels alone, he knows that God is faithful. Like I feel alone, all alone here in this moment, but you are indeed faithful what a, what a crazy juxtaposition it really 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 is and and hear that hear that again <clears throat> yet you are holy yet you are trustworthy can you can you feel the humanity in those words right he doesn't say i am holy i am trustworthy this is this is the son of god this is god hanging on the cross he doesn't say i am holy i am trustworthy he says you are like he has put himself in our position, taken on our humanity, wrote himself into our story. So, so, so amazing. So at this point, he has set aside his divine privilege and is now facing the cross in his humanity and not his deity. I think that is so powerful. So incredibly powerful. And the thing is, when, when you think about people today, think about this, again, that also common question People say, if God's loving and personal, why doesn't he care about our suffering? And you look at this psalm and you look at Jesus and you find out God is not indifferent to our suffering. God is not unconcerned with our suffering. God has joined us in our humanity and our suffering. He wrote himself into our story. He certainly cares about our suffering. He came to do something about it. Pastor Charles Price from Toronto, Canada, listen to these words that he writes and I didn't put them on the screen, but let's listen to this. Richard Dawkins is the author of The God Delusion. He was formerly professor for public understanding of science at Oxford University. He once debated John Lennox, who is professor of mathematics at Oxford University. They debated the existence of God. At one point, Dawkins says of John Lennox, he believes that the creator of the universe, the God who devised the laws of physics, physics the laws of mathematics, the physical constants, that this genius of mathematics and physical science could not think of a better way to rid the world of sin than to come to this little speck of cosmic dust and have himself tortured and executed so that he could forgive. That, says Dawkins, is profoundly unscientific. Not only is, is it unscientific, but it doesn't do justice to the grandeur of the universe. Why would God bother entering into our small and broken planet Dawkins chided Lennox and all Christians for believing in that kind of God. God's only and eternal son on a Roman cross, despised and rejected by men on this tiny planet. It's like being blindsided in the subway station on a Friday morning in Washington, D.C., in a hurry to get to work, and you pass by one of the most brilliant violinists in the world, playing some of the most beautiful music in the world on one of the most expensive violins in the world. You don't expect to see the master violinist performing in such a dirty, undignified place. But that is the very point. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. And that is so counterintuitive to us. So counterintuitive to us that, that God would come down and write himself into our story and become man. It's like, wow. 
that is just really, really crazy. Really, really crazy. Again, the pain passes, but the beauty remains. So remember that his story is our story because he lovingly chose to write himself into our story. Look at verses six. Uh, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Just remember that our sin became became his sin. Our sin became his sin. We come to the communion table. We, we are very aware of our sin, of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. It's this incredible contrast, right? You can't miss it. Like, why is the cross? Because God is holy. And because we have sinned against the holy God and God's plan to kind of restore a relationship between us and him is the cross. It's just that way. I believe the brutality of the cross, think about this, the brutality of the cross is meant to prove the reality of our sin. Like why is the cross so vicious and why is it so brutal and why is it so bloody and why is it so, does it end in death? Because our sin is brutal and violent and ugly and ends in death. And the cross, as it plays out physically, is just a sign of what is going on spiritually now i love this because the imagery used here to deal with us and our sin is that of a worm but i am a worm right you ever feel like a worm like what is that supposed to conjure up like like i'm a worm like jesus i'm a worm like i thought of these words like weak and despised and mocked and insignificant and pathetic and unworthy and maybe kind of like squished you ever feel squished in life squashed in life like, like, worms are pretty disgusting. Like, the only time you really like to see a big, fat, juicy worm is when? When you're going fishing. Okay, then, then, yeah, give me a bunch of them good, fat, juicy worms. But other than that, no. I still remember, I don't remember the, all the details of this. You can ask Cindy later. We were growing up, we're living in Ohio. I'm in like fifth grade, she's in high school. We're at the neighbor's house for some reason, for some meal, and she's talking about how that day at school, they have to dissect a worm. Well, the neighbors misheard her, and the neighbors thought, they said she had worms. So the neighbors thought that Cindy had worms. <laughs> That's disgusting, right? You don't want us to have worms, right? It's bad enough when your dog has worms, let alone... Us have worms. And so that, though, he, he, he's like a worm. That's like that old joke, really, really, that old joke. Is there anything more disgusting than biting into an apple and finding a worm? Anything more disgusting? There is one thing. Biting into an apple and finding half a worm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think this is so amazing here because what you have here then... Uh, um, I get ahead of myself here, but you have the great I am declaring that he is a worm. The great I am is declaring that he is a worm. Now, there's a deeper meaning behind the worm here, though, than all those emotional feelings it conjures up. There is a deeper emotion, a uh, d- deeper implication at play here, and it's, it's simply this. The word for worm here, there are different words used in the Bible for a worm. Uh, here it uses the, 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 the word tola. It's the tola worm. It's very specific and it's not generally used as the, as the definition or the word used for worm, but in this case it is. And the tola worm is really important to the Jewish people. I was listening to Mike Winger this week talk about this and he was talking about how in recent years there, there is a, the Temple Institute wants to rebuild the Jewish temple and reconstruct all things Jewish in that temple. That's what they want to do. And so... This worm is very important because it releases a very intense red dye. And they use that red dye on the priestly garments. It's really fascinating. Watch what happens to this tola worm. What it does is it, is it will, it, it will uh, crawl itself up an oak tree. And then it attaches to that oak tree. And then after it attaches, like a, a shell like forms around this worm on the oak tree. And then it gives birth to all of its worms. And three days later, those worms... And over a period of three days, those worms will eat the mother or eat the parent there in that shell. So now the worms have eaten the the mother and they consume her body until she is dead. The worms then go out and leave the shell. Three days later, what happens after they do that is, is this worm leaves a red dye, a red substance on the tree. It stains the tree red. Three days later, 
after the worms have all left, then there's this, this um, flaky white waxy substance that forms where that red dye was. And it's fascinating because they, you can use the red dye, as I said, to make these priestly garments. They use it for that. They use this white, flaky white substance for medicinal reasons. It can help with some kind of heart issues, and it's pretty fascinating. But do you see the symbolism there of this tola worm? Like, I'm a tola worm. What, are the, and what, what did Christ do? But he went up on a tree and attached himself to that tree. And all of his offspring, what? Fed off of him and killed him with their sin. And yet as we feed off of Christ, we are nourished. And then, of course, he stained that tree red. Three days later, he was gone. And there was a white, flaky substance left in his place. And he rose from the dead. And here's how the prophet Isaiah speaks to this very thing. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, that's the same word for the tola worm, they shall become like wool. Wow. Isn't that just, just so incredibly amazing? And so what we see here is that this Tola worm's life cycle symbolizes the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And so the reality, whatever David went through, David felt despised and mocked and he, he felt pathetic and weak like a worm. But even more, the great I am became a worm for us. If we read on here, it's fat. look at verses 9 and 11. Just continuing on here. You, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you as I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. And I just love this because the psalm now really brings in the humanity of Jesus. Like yes, Jesus was born as a human. He had to learn to trust the Father. And so Jesus was like deity plus humanity and yet he didn't use the advantage of his deity. Well, living as a human, I've used that illustration in the last few weeks, right? He didn't pull out his God card and say, ha, you can't tempt me, I am faithful and true. No, he, he faced a temptation like you and I do, and through the power of the Spirit, he overcame it. But it's, it's just an amazing wow moment here. Jesus, think about it this way, Jesus didn't come to earth just to be a man. He came to earth to be a worm. Like, wow. That's just so, just kind of blows my mind. Now, what about one other idea? Because people kind of like this, this lingo that we are worms. Did you know you're a worm? People like that idea. I think Isaac Watts came up, must have brought this into his great hymn at the cross from Psalm 22. At the last, did my Savior bleed and did my sovereign die? Would he devote the sacred head for such a worm as I? And I, I dwelled, I, I thought about that, I, I just contemplated that lyric this week, and I thought about how many times there are things we sing that are a little problematic and a little off. Maybe I'm, over, maybe I'm overblowing this, but I think, really, to sing this accurately, you have to tweak it just slightly. If, if I'm going to sing this song and reflect my life with Christ, I would have to say, alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm was I? Yeah, maybe I was weak and pathetic and, and despised and mocked and, and I felt like, but now my identity's in Christ. I'm a new creation. That's the reality. In fact, I would say today we are no longer worms, but now we are new creation butterflies. Like, yes, because the life of Christ has made me new in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we're new creations. So today's big idea again from Renoir. The pain passes, but the beauty remains. Look at verses 14 through 18. I am poured out like water. Just think about that. Like, like Jesus is the living water, right? He's poured out like water. He's empty. And all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And that last line, the dust of death, this takes us all the way to the fact that what? Our death became his death. Like our death became his death. I deserve to die on that cross for my sins. And he wrote himself into my story and he took my place. <clears throat> the truth is, when you were hanging on the cross, like... It was hard to breathe. Like to get a breath, you'd have to push up 
Like you have to push up. He, he's nailed. He's pushing up on those nails that are nailed into him. And it would be excruciating just to say anything. Maybe why he only says seven phrases and they're small phrases over the likes of six hours. Could have been really hard to speak. But two things to keep in mind here again. I deserve that cross. And then here's the thing I really want us to catch. Really, right? Think about this. Jesus' physical death at the end of the cross can overshadow his spiritual death that he experienced on the cross. I'm curious how well you can see that. Sometimes I don't use the best, uh, best slide there. His physical death at the end of the cross can overshadow his spiritual death that he experienced while on the cross. Because on the cross, he took our sin, our shame, our guilt, our despair, our hopelessness, our brokenness, our emptiness. On the cross, he really descended into what we would consider hell. And we have to process a moment the one who has never sinned in his life, all of a sudden having every imaginable sin thrust on him. That is just so. No wonder he likened himself to a worm. Eleanor Stump makes this very case in her book Atonement. I think I put it on here. Listen to this. Um, How are we to understand Jesus' cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, along with his desperate prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, pleading with God, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Here's the question. Mere mortals have managed to face death with more composure than Jesus did. Stephen, for example, just months later, Jesus knew he would rise from the dead, so why all the anguish? In his ordeal on the cross, Christ's mind reads the mental states found in all the evil human acts human beings have ever committed. Every vile, shocking, disgusting, revulsive, psychic stake accompanying every human evil act will miraculously be at once in the human psyche of Christ without yielding an evil uh, configuration in either Christ's intellect or will. Such psychic agony would greatly eclipse all other human psychological suffering. Flooded with such horror, Christ might well lose entirely his ability to find the mind of God, the Father. This drives home the suffering of Christ, a suffering so comprehensively horrible that it surpasses even the physical abuse of crucifixion. And I think that is so fascinating. We focus on his physical death. And yeah, that happened and that was painful. What was more painful for Christ was the spiritual death, was, was feeling sin, the weight of sin, our sin and shame and guilt and the vileness of all of that. What's fascinating here is the New Testament author, Matthew. Matthew is the one of the four Gospels that looks at Jesus as a king, like each Gospel writer has a different focus. He looks at Jesus as a king. And what's really fascinating is that David here is describing his intense suffering in this moment. He is the king of Israel. And here we have Jesus, the king, and it's describing his great suffering on the cross. And Matthew, the one who tends to view Jesus as a king, is the one who quotes Psalm 22. And I think that is really, really, really powerful. We see the suffering King David, the suffering King Jesus, and Matthew just walks us through these parallels. Just look at a few of them. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen: For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots and that's exactly what Matthew says. They divided his garments among them by casting lots. How about this one? In Psalm 22, 7, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. Matthew 27, 39, and those who passed by derided him wagging their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Verse 8. Matthew 27, 43. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And one more. Matthew 22, 1. The most notable. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Matthew 27, 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A thousand years before Matthew, David writes this song that is perfectly descriptive of Christ and Matthew then quotes him. Pretty amazing. 
pretty incredibly amazing. It's pretty clear here that the one, the God who is eternal life, has set aside his divine privilege to die our death on the cross. Again, the big idea. The pain passes, but the beauty remains. And this, this big idea today really comes into light now as we move to this final, final, final point. Remember that our story became his story, our sin became his sin, our death became his death, and number four, remember that his story has now become our story. Wow. His story has now become our story. In an amazing turn of events, our story, which becomes Jesus' story, is totally flipped around. Whereas Jesus wrote himself into our story, now thanks to the cross, Jesus has written us into his story. We, the sheep, all went astray, all went our own way. We all wandered off from the Father. Jesus came searching for us. Hopefully, he has brought us all back home this morning. Hopefully, this morning, Christ, the great shepherd, has found you and brought you back to the Father. Hopefully, this morning, you have been adopted and are once again a part of the Father's royal family. And just know this was God's this was always God's plan from the beginning. God's plan always from the beginning was to come to earth, take on humanity, and write himself into our story. For two plus years, Jesus walked the, earth, the, the streets and roads of, of this world, letting us know that he could be written, that we could be written into his divine story and become a part of his royal family. And I just want to say this morning, let me ask you very clearly, everyone in this room, have you been written into God's story? Have you? He wrote himself into yours. Have you been written into his? Have you, through faith, simply acknowledged that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for you? People today like to talk about the end of the world, like the end of the world's coming. Let me let you in on a secret. If you really know the Bible, you'll know something. This world ain't never gonna end. It's never gonna end. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming for those who are God's children, but this world never really ends. You know what really happens when, when you one day die? You die, but you really don't die spiritually. Your spirit goes on forever. You're created in God's image. What happens is you simply live in eternity apart from Christ, apart from God. People often talk about the horror on this, of this world, right? You know, all the ugliness in this world and all the hate and, and, and all the anger and all the ugliness. And can you just imagine living in a world, though, think about this, where there is absolutely no goodness and no glory. There is absolutely no love and there's no light. Just imagine a world. You live for eternity. There's not an ounce of goodness and an ounce of glory. An ounce of love and an ounce of light. It's just hate and it's vileness and it's evilness and it's darkness. I was thinking this week we can get into the debate, you know. So what is hell like? Is hell a literal fire? Or is, is, is it really not a literal fire? Is that symbolism? That misses the point. Because you know what's going to make hell really, just really hard? It's not that it's a literal fire. It's that it's a, it is a spiritual separation from all that is good and holy and true. There's not an ounce of goodness, an ounce of love in hell. It really doesn't matter if the fire is literal or not. We just saw it with Jesus, right? What was worse for Jesus hanging on the cross? The physical suffering or the spiritual suffering? That he would cry out and he would say, God, why have you forsaken me? And, and God hadn't. We'll see that in a moment. But that's the reality of what's going on here. And my prayer today is that you have put your faith and trust in Christ. You have acknowledged that you're a sinner. You understand that Christ died on the cross for you and you have reached out and, and you have said, I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to receive your life. I want to receive your love. I want to be a new creation. I'm tired of being a worm. I want to be a butterfly and I want to soar beautifully in this world. We just encourage you today and if you've never done that, let me encourage you right from your privacy of your seat in your heart to just whisper yes to Jesus today and receive him as your savior. It's, it is that simple. You don't gotta stand up. You don't gotta come down front. You just gotta say yes. But Psalm 22 here going on. Again, Jesus who wrote himself into your story now writes, wants to write you into his just know that today. He wants to write you into his story. And this is where Psalm 22 then, it's like Psalm 22 verse 22 is the hinge of this chapter. 
Because Psalm 22 then goes from the darkest of suffering to the brightest of hope. We find it in Psalm 22, verse 22. It's like the hinge. Psalm 22, I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And this is really where the passage seems to hinge. Right in this sense. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And I didn't put it on the screen. I missed something here. But there is something really amazing here when he says that. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. It's really fascinating. Matthew 28, resurrection morning. Listen to what Jesus says. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me. And what's fascinating about that, that is the only time Jesus ever called the disciples his brothers. Matthew. Which wants to point us again back to Psalm 22 and reinforce this amazing, amazing narrative. Hmm. So just Wrapping up here, just give you a handful of scriptures here at the end. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the affliction. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. I love that because it tells us that Psalm 22 verse 1 is just his feeling. But God didn't abandon Jesus, no matter what you've heard. God didn't turn his back on Jesus. God didn't leave Jesus alone on the cross. He was there all the time. And we simply know this, that his victory is our victory. Victory over sin and Satan and destructive emotions and death and all the things we want victory over, his victory on the cross becomes our victory when we write ourselves into his story when we receive his forgiveness, when we receive his life, we also see this, look at, look at verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. What a great verse. Just know that our hope is, his hope is our hope. And just note the eschatological focus here. Like, it just, the eschatological focus is just that it looks on the eternal age to come. It it looks on the life to come. And from the suffering of the cross that gives way to the hope of all eternity, where all God's family joins together in worship and praise. And again, I hope every one of you are going to join me there. Verses 25 and 26, from you comes my praise. In the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And his life becomes our life. I just love that line. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. The reality is Jesus is the great bread of life that satisfies like no other. As we, as we go to the communion table today and we break that bread and eat that bread, it's like we're symbolically taking in the bread of life that can satisfy like no other. People try to find their satisfaction in their wealth and their fame and their accomplishments. They try to find satisfaction by satisfying their flesh. That doesn't work. It leaves us empty. It leaves us wanting. But David said it best, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I don't want for anything because the bread of life satisfies. And then finally, there's that hinge verse. I will tell of all your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Just know this, that his song is our song. The song of gratitude and grace we sing as we lift up our communion cups. It's the song of victory. It's the song of hope in despair. It's it's the song of joy because Christ is our life. It's the song of praise that Jesus is worthy. And we love to sing. And it's the song of gratitude and grace we sing as we lift up our communion cups. Did you know what's really fascinating 
for the Jewish people back in the day, and they had their version of, of the Bible, they had their Psalms here, they didn't come with chapters, like they didn't come with verses, they didn't come with chapters. So how would you identify a certain psalm? You know how you identified a certain psalm? You identified a certain psalm by the opening line. Like it would be, you know, that my God, my God psalm. And every, everybody would know. And when Jesus is on the cross and Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every good and faithful Jew immediately knows what he's talking about, what he's referring to, and what Jesus is announcing to everyone there and announcing to all of us today is if you want to understand the cross, just go back and read Psalm 22. Just go back and read how he wrote himself into our story, how our sin became his sin, our death became his death, also that his story could become our story, that his life could become our life, that his hope and his victory and his song could become our song. Let's pray and then we're gonna celebrate communion. Father God, thank you for your life and your death. and Thank you for the hope that's wrapped up in that. Today as we go to the communion table, just open our hearts to, to just feel your presence, to become so aware of you, to become, become so grateful for all that you've done. May we know today we are worthy. We can lift that communion cup high. We can lift it up boldly because you have gone to the cross, forgiven us of our sins, and you have written us into your story. And Lord, again, if anybody here today has never done that, I pray today they, that you would just trouble their soul, that your spirit would just knock on their door, bang on their door till they'll, they'll open it and say, Christ, come in, make me yours. In Jesus' name, amen. So Steve and Ken will come down and... Um,
voice of the Lord. Be with all God's people. Amen. receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your body that satisfies like no one and nothing else can. Amen. crazy to think that we can never totally fathom in our human minds how much God loves us. I just will never be able to. I mean, it, we, we get overwhelmed and we get moved to tears and we're captivated by what we read and learn, but God loves us even more than that. It's just mind-blowing that he would write himself into our story, that he would not just become a man, but he'd become a worm. He would take every ugly part of our life and just own it. 
for six hours on a cross so we could let it go forever. How amazing is that? He writes here, he goes on, in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink deeply. Thank you for your blood, Lord. Life is in the blood. The blood washes us clean of all of our sin and guilt and shame and everything that we struggle to let go of. You took care of it at the cross. Let us know we can walk in victory and freedom when we just trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. We've got to end again on a high note here. Let's just lift our voices one last time this morning in praise.